Australia's space developments. The new space industry has a business model that is fail fast. It is, you know, build technology as quickly as you can. Don't worry about if the early prototypes fail. Learn as quick as you can, build the next one and keep going. India-China relations. Due to that boundary crisis, uh, India has increased its defence and security cooperation bilaterally with the US, Australia, Japan and uh, elevated the Quad and doing much more with its Quad partners in various domains. Southeast Asia's digital transformation. It's essentially booming. It's about 1 trillion by 2030, that's the projection. There are about 440 million people who are currently online with about 60 million, I believe, were added over the course of the pandemic. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. With me, Olivia Nelson. As Australia's space sector grows and continues to build significant sovereign capabilities, optimising the links between commercial and national security space is critical. ASPE's Vec Shrimpton speaks to Adam Gilmore about the need for greater collaboration between the private sector and government to support Australia's space industry. Adam Gilmore, CEO and co-founder of Gilmore Space Technologies. Thank you for joining me on the ASPE podcast today. Welcome to ASPE. Thanks very much, Beck. Great to be here. Gilmore Space is a venture-backed Queensland startup rocket company developing new capabilities for launching small satellites to space. Now launched uh, originally in 2013, it was you and your brother James, but you have grown Gilmore into the biggest, I think, Australian space company now. Am I right? I think so. I mean, um, it could be a contentious thing, but I think if you look at, we've got 160 people, we've raised about $90 million, you know, on those metrics, we're the biggest. We're definitely building the biggest thing in space. You know, a launch vehicle is a lot bigger than satellites. Um, you know, a lot more complicated. You need a lot more people to do it. So, you know, in terms of all the different technologies we're developing, it's quite comprehensive what we've got. Agree. I think something that has struck me since I've I've known you, Adam, which is not not that long. You know, you've got a huge sense of optimism, boundless energy, it seems, and and certainly great belief but the other thing you've got is um and i think a reason perhaps behind your success is the personal investment that you make in time in resources um in helping the system the government understand what it needs to do to help australian sovereign sovereign industry so you've been uh, an excellent advocate not only for yourself but for, for industry more broadly but can i get you just to talk about what you're doing at gilmore space and you've said you're building a, a rocket company but you're doing more than that, you're building manufacturing capability, you're building skills, you're investing in the next generation. Just just briefly in your in your own words, how do you describe what it is that you're that you're going after in an ecosystem sense, I guess, beyond beyond the rocket capability? Yeah, I think I'll start by saying it's a heck of a lot harder than I thought it was going to be to build a launch vehicle. And so what we've ended up doing was uh, going out into Australian industry to companies that doing something in some other industry but have like machines or technology and saying, hey, would you like to make us a bit of our rocket? And that's been a fantastic exercise. It hasn't been a slam dunk. We've had to spend money on R&D and et cetera. But we have over 300 suppliers in Australia that provide quite a lot of the different components of our launch vehicle that we assemble. 
We've also made a lot of make-buy decisions. So we've looked at other bits of the launch vehicle that is just too expensive to have someone else make and then gone through our own R&D process for that. And that involves a lot of composite technology, a lot of welding technology. I never knew how hard it was to weld things. So we've spent more than a year developing welding techniques for you know thin-walled aluminium structures like tanks. Yeah. You know, we have a big uh, guidance, navigation, control software team. You know, there's like 20 people that work on that. Uh, We have an electronics team that works on all the avionics systems, um, people that build the batteries. Uh, So we build our own batteries. We get cells from overseas, but we put them together in batteries. Uh, You know, the list goes on and on. And, you know, if you visit the factory and you walk around the factory, you just see all these other bits of technology that we've had to do to get our launch vehicle done. Yeah. There's an element of um, learning by doing that clearly you've been very quick uh, to, to pick up on and to bring into your approach, I guess. Adam, government investment and commitment to space has demonstrably grown over the last few years. You and I have talked before about the fact that the establishment of the space agency was probably the single most important thing for Australia's sovereign space industry that could, that could have happened. We now have a space command stood up this year. These are all terrific developments, but I think it's really important to understand that it's a fast-paced, dynamic industry, uh, and especially in in the defence context, we need to act really quickly. Can I get your comments on Australia's appetite for risk and that the fast-fail mentality that space globally has demonstrated time and time again, is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I mean, I'll start by talking about what I call new space. So the new space industry has a business model that is fail fast. It is, you know, build technology as quickly as you can. Don't worry about if the early prototypes fail. Learn as quick as you can, build the next one and keep going. If you look at all of the successful global space companies now, that is exactly how they work. SpaceX is the best one. You know, they blow up a Starship every three months in the early days. They just keep building them and they learn and then they got it to work and it's fantastic. So that as a design philosophy, I think is very important. And so if you compare that to what the old space industry was where they'd say, okay, I'm going to develop a new launch vehicle. I'm going to spend 10 years developing a launch vehicle and billions of dollars but I don't want the first one to fail. That is a much slower process. It is a much more expensive process and it's a much more risky process. You know, it really depends on how you look at risk. I look at risk as money spent and time it took to develop the technology. And so if you can have a philosophy where you say, okay, I'm going to develop a prototype in 18 months and it's going to have a 30% chance of success and I'm going to test it. And I'm going to instrument it up. And this is really important. You've got to put a whole lot of instruments, literally like a Christmas tree lights around whatever vehicle you're doing so that when you test it, you can see what's going on literally every five centimeters of the vehicle. And so when it fails, you have a really good idea of what failed. And then you can fix that, build another one, test again. And that is a philosophy that we've been doing at Gilmore Space and what the general new space industry has been doing. And I think that's the missing piece in Australia, that you know the government, the Defence Department has to realise that if they want to develop great capability quickly, they have to embrace this concept of fail fast, 
learn fast, build fast. I keep hearing that thing about fail fast, but fail fast is just the beginning. Fail fast is one part of the process. It's fail fast, learn fast, build fast, finish fast. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think we have to do. I'm very happy to hear the people in Space Command talking about that. They're talking about failing fast, learning as quickly as they can, taking risk. I'd love to see that replicated in the rest of the Defence Force. Yep, I, I, um, I think we've seen actually, and I think the US, the UK possibly as well, we have uh, other, other models where we've seen that, uh, especially in military forces and capability development, both Air Force and Space Forces do tend to push that envelope uh, and, and have, a, have a good track record of demonstrating faster fielding of capabilities, if you like. But there are issues uh, as well, Adam, about the acquisition process here, aren't there? And um, it, it's not – I like that you expanded beyond failing fast because actually to focus on failing fast is to focus on fail. Mm. And you're right, you've actually got to get to the finish line. Yep. Um, and you don't do that unless you have the, the learning fast, the building again, the going again and, and actually finishing. But on, on acquisition, um, how do you think the engagement is going on capability requirements and where do you think there's room perhaps to improve in the conversation between – what's needed in a capability sense and what industry can bring to, to something like defence. Do you, do you think there's a good conversation going on there or, or there's room for improvement? There's room to improvement. I'm going to talk about my own experience. So I started the company. I'm not an engineer. I set a set of requirements. You know, so requirements are basically the beginning of any kind of a capability. And what I've learned is that if you get those requirements wrong, the vehicle that you build or the thing that you build can be vastly more complicated, take much longer and be much more expensive. And that's the missing piece in our capability acquisition. We try too hard to nail down the requirements of the technology. And the reality is anything that is complicated, you learn as you go. So you have to have a flexibility in requirements. And that is, I think, what is missing. I think if the Defence Department started with a really high-level basic requirement. Literally, I've got to have a fighter plane that evades radar and can fly 500 kilometres and start there and see what people can build. And then as you get near the end of the process, you can say, okay, you've got 450 kilometres of range. Can you do a design change that gets the last 10%? And that is what works. And that is what we've done in our vehicle. You know, we originally wanted to get 250 kilograms out of the first launch vehicle. I cut the requirement to 150 because it was going to take forever to improve it. What we've then done is gone, we'll develop a whole brand new vehicle we call Block 2, which takes 1,000 kilograms up to space from what we've learned from the first one. Yeah. And, you know, that Great second example. vehicle can be, is going to be basically a year, year and a half after the first one. And so rather than spend another two years trying to get an extra, to scrape an extra 100 kilograms out of the first vehicle, we just learned from that and said, all right, get the next one done. That is why it takes us so long to field capability in Australia. We spend years on the requirement. We should spend three months on the requirement, blast the contracts out, get prototypes developed, and then from those prototypes learn how can I move the, move the barrier? How can I make it a bit better? 
is it close to what I wanted or can I go a lot further? A great way, I think, to ensure as well that you're testing your assumptions at the point in which you set requirements, right? So in the example that you gave where you got to the 450 and the initial requirement set was 500, you know, perhaps you come back at that point and say, do you really need 500? Exactly. What, what could we do differently that might get you this, the same effect but not maybe, – maybe we don't need 500. I'll give you a great example from space, yep. the space shuttle. The reason why the space shuttle has wings is because the US Air Force said, I want cross-range capability of at least 1,000 kilometres. The space shuttle never did it. On It had 130 missions. They never went cross-range. That added literally – billions of dollars and years to the development time of the space shuttle it was absolutely unnecessary requirement elon musk says it as well he said if you want to make things speed up the first thing you do is delete requirements we are going to have to wrap it up there for today um, but i look forward to welcoming you back to aspie to continue this conversation very soon adam thank you for your time my pleasure it's been more than two years since the deadly clashes on the india china border And despite many rounds of consultations between the two countries, the situation shows no signs of improving. Barney Grewal speaks to Dr Tanvi Madan about the trajectory of the India-China relationship, as well as the differences between India's participation in the Quad, BRICS, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. Thanks, Tanvi, for joining us in Canberra today. I wanted to start by talking about the India-China relationship, where it is now and where it's going. It's been two years since the 2020 border clashes, where the first deaths at the border occurred in over 40 years. There have been recent media reports that there has been more Chinese buildup at the border, not just defense installations, but also civilian villages, um, etc. Where do you see the India-China relationship going, given the border crisis is not resolved? India has made it very clear that the relationship can't move forward without China attempting to resolve the border crisis. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, Bani. It's good to to be back in Canberra. Um, I think the India-China relationship is a fundamentally different one than it was in January 2020. Um, and we saw this border crisis really start in kind of uh, May, uh, April, May 2020 with the fatal clash in June. And One of the things that had been debated was, was this going to be an inflection point or a watershed moment in the relationship, or was it going to be just another boundary crisis? I think two years on, we can say that it it is, it's not a turning point, but it has been an inflection point. Uh, And I think there are at least four ways that you, you, you see this being an inflection point, which is one, I think it has changed the debate in India, particularly within government, uh, about China itself. Just like elsewhere in the world, there had been some debate in India with some advocating that India, if India engaged with China economically in kind of multilateral fora, that this could alleviate, you know, kind of interdependence would alleviate, economic interdependence would alleviate political frictions. That has obviously not proven to be the case. So those advocating for a closer China-India relationship, uh, an economic, a diplomatic one, to ease these geopolitical frictions... Um, I think have lost some kind of traction. Uh, I think the second thing, so I think that debate has changed. I think the second thing is that the boundary now, the border is fundamentally changed. Uh, Whether it's because of the buildup on both sides that you've talked about, that I find it very hard to believe there will be a reversal uh, in the near future. 
But even if China and India, as I think India would, would like to stabilize the boundary, does not want to see an escalation. But even if they come to some sort of agreement about resolving this current crisis, for India, there are a couple of issues. Uh, I think the major one is it saw in this boundary crisis uh, that China has, it believes China violated various agreements that India and China had side, uh, signed to keep a peace and stability maintained at the border. And for India, that peace and tranquility has been a prerequisite for the broader relationship. Today, if Indian, the Indian government thinks that China violated these agreements, tomorrow you can agree to another set of protocols and processes. But India will always have at the back of its mind, how can it trust China that it will stick to these commitments? So I think that's another reason. And if you then have that position that you don't know if China can stick to this commitment, you're not going to move your troops back to the border. So today, just far more forward deployed troops, uh, more infrastructure, more military modernization. Uh, and then two other things uh, that I'll mention briefly is one, in the course of these two years, both because of COVID and China's handling of it, as well as the boundary crisis, India has taken a series of domestic policy moves that impose restrictions or uh, impose extra scrutiny on Chinese involvement in various Indian educational, economic, technology sectors, some of which might be reversed, but most of which, particularly in critical sectors, will not be. So India is not decoupling, but it is disentangling from China in some key ways. I don't see a sum of, um, uh, several of those elements being reversed. And finally, on the foreign policy side, due to that boundary crisis, uh, India has increased its defense and security cooperation bilaterally with the US, Australia, Japan, and uh, exp elevated the Quad and doing much more with its Quad partners in various domains. It's not going to reverse that. Might, you know, it might, if, if there's some China-India stabilization, there might be a, a little bit of um, perhaps, uh, um, you know, the pace of India's involvement might change. But what we've seen thus far is even, for example, as China has been, and Foreign Minister Wang Yi went to India and others saying, look, we should try to kind of move on from this boundary crisis. India is meeting with these officials. Modi might even meet with Xi in the future. But what you're not seeing is India not doing things with the Quad, like it didn't say no to the Maritime Domain Awareness Partnership for the Indo-Pacific, for example. Um, so I think you'll see it move at two tracks. Look for spaces to stabilize the boundary, but at the same time continue to make the moves necessary uh, to protect itself. You mentioned that Modi is going to maybe meet Xi in the future. We know the G20 Leaders Summit is going to be held in Indonesia later this year. What do you think Modi's thinking when going into these summits? What is his impression of Xi? I know they've had two bilateral summits before the border crisis. Can you tell us a bit more about the thinking there? Um, so both in terms of a potential meeting at G20 or a potential meeting at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, Summit that is to be held before that, and crucially that will be before the 20th Party Congress, um, there is the speculation that you know Modi and Xi might meet. Now, I think there are two dimensions of this, which is both a risk and an opportunity. I think that Modi might see, and I, I can't you know put myself in his head, so this is somewhat you know informed speculation on my part too. But um, uh, you know, for one, it is striking that before the boundary crisis, they met eighteen times. Uh, the two major summits, as you talked about, uh, in twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, but also several meetings. Uh, trips exchanged uh, on the uh, sidelines of various summits as well. Um, so f after many decades, you know, they were kind of the Indian and Chinese leaders who had met the most, but they have not 
met. They've been, in, you know, in virtual meeting rooms, Zoom rooms today together, but they have not met um, for uh, two years. Now, some of this is she hasn't left the country as well. Um, but nonetheless, if they met, it would definitely make news. Now, what are the, why would Modi think that, oh, maybe I should do this meeting? I can see two reasons why, or two and a half maybe. I think one is uh, he might actually see an opportunity to engage with Xi and try to stabilize the border. This is not a time that India wants the boundary situation escalated. It's not, it's a little bit uncertain about the supply of spare parts and military supplies from Russia, given Russia's own needs, not to mention the Russia-China relationship. Um, and India's got other things to worry about, including trying to recover from both COVID and kind of inflationary concerns right now, resulting from the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So this is not a time India wants to kind of have the boundary situation escalate. So this might be one reason he might think, as he has in the past, uh, he's a believer in personal diplomacy, that he and she, that it is necessary to kind of break the logjam or the stalemate. The kind of half part of that is, China might actually surprise us all. Uh, I'm, I, I, the probability might be low, but nonetheless, one has to think about these things and actually say, you know, it wants to focus on the U.S. challenge, wants to maybe create a wedge between India and its quad partners and therefore make some concessions on the border and move back. Um, that will then give Modi, Modi can actually then say that, look, I got Xi to kind of move on this. Um, and I think there's another aspect of this as well, which is India is hosting the G20 next year, and Modi sees it also very much not just in terms of an economic summit, um, but almost as part of his re-election campaign ahead of the 2024 elections. And so he might have, uh, or others might have told him, if you want Xi to come to India, you will need to kind of meet with him. I have views about, you know, I don't think India should care that much whether uh, she turns up at the G20 or not. But nonetheless, this is how. What are the cons for Modi of uh, meeting Xi, especially if there are no concessions at the border? India has thus far taken the line that it cannot, the uh, relationship, the India-China relationship cannot turn back, return to normal unless the situation at the border returns to normal. So it says the situation at the border is abnormal, can't turn if there's now a sense as China is messaging out that, oh, momentum has returned to the China-India relationship because, you know, India is taking part in these BRICS and RIC and Russia-India-China um, and Shanghai Cooperation Summit. Um, Wang Yi was foreign minister. Wang Yi was in India. Um, the, the two foreign ministers met on the sidelines of a recent meeting that you essentially say that China can say uh, we have moved back to normal. Um, and so they could be quite pleased with where they are. For Modi, that's a risk because he will then look like he's backing down. And the second, I think, risk for him politically is that he has now given Xi the benefit of the doubt twice, uh, meeting him first kind of in 2014, at which time there was a boundary crisis. And then again in 2018 and 2019, and again, there was a boundary crisis. If he gives him a th benefit of the doubt third time, and there is another escalation of the boundary in the year before his re-election campaign, this could potentially be a risk for him as he looks at his political picture. So we'll see where it goes, but I think I can see how uh, you could make the case. I would say that it was more risky, particularly without concessions uh, on China's part. Uh, but there might be other kind of fish to fry that India has that it tells itself that it needs this meeting or it wants this meeting to happen. So for my last question, I want to talk more about India's participation 
as you've pointed out, in the SEO, in BRICS, in the Russia-India um, trilateral, uh, Russia-India-China trilateral. How do you see India's participation in these groupings vis-a-vis India's participation in the Quad? There is, and I've noticed some confusion of why is India aligning itself with the Quad partners, but at the same time participating in the SEO, participating in the Russia-India-China trilateral. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I know a lot of people think they're analogous, the Quad and BRICS and RIC and SEO. Uh, I don't believe they are. I think the the Quad has kind of a strategic purpose and it is a set of countries that have both shared interests and a shared vision of the Indo-Pacific and a shared agenda. And they don't have any direct disputes with each other. The SEO, RICS and BRIC, uh, when they first started, I think they were attractive to India, particularly BRICS and the Russia-India-China trilateral, because at that time in the mid-2000s, there wasn't, India wasn't get, getting much traction in terms of its voice being heard on global governance issues uh, in, uh, in the international uh, arena. And so this gave it a platform, a non-West platform. The challenge for India now is Russia and China increasingly trying to use these groupings as anti-West organizations. And that doesn't actually fit with India's own interests. So I think these organizations, whether because of this anti-West component that Russia and China are trying to portray or use them for, or because of India-China tensions, which uh, limit what these organizations can do, if the BRICs are talking about uh, kind of protecting territorial integrity and sovereignty, forget what Russia is doing for India, and one can't forget what Russia is doing, but for India, the country that it sees as violating its territorial integrity and sovereignty is in the room, it's China, or at the SCO, which looks at counterterrorism, uh, who does India, who's India concerned about, you know, state-based um, terror groups in Pakistan, which is sitting at the table right next to it. So these organizations have kind of limited uh, you know, the convergences are a little bit more limited. So I think what India now finds is these are useful platforms to actually places to engage with its rivals. Um, it doesn't want to leave these organizations and leave a vacuum that other countries will fill. Um, it doesn't, you know, it wants to be part of these conversations. But I think you'll also see limited utility. I mean, I think you'll see maybe on BRICS side some movement on the economic side, some economic cooperation, t- thinking about alternative payment schemes and things like that. But I think on the strategic side, these organizations have limited utility for India, these groupings, as long as India-China relations are so strained. Uh, and a second, especially as Russia and China try to make them and have it proposed expanding them into these alt-G20s that are more like anti-West organizations. So India won't leave them, but I think they will also not have the kind of strategic utility for India that groupings like the Quad or other groupings that India is now forming or plurilaterals or minilaterals choose your term coalitions that India is forming. Thanks so much, Tanmi. You're welcome, Bani. Southeast Asia continues to see a rapid digital transformation, fueling the region's economic growth. Dr. Gatra Priyandita speaks to Alina Noor about how governments in Southeast Asia are responding to the region's digital transformation. Hi, Alina. Uh, welcome to the ASPE podcast. Uh, we're very happy to have caught you in the midst of your very busy schedule here in Australia to talk to us about cybersecurity and the digital economy in Southeast Asia. Whenever we talk about success stories in the region, there's often a strong focus on digital transformation. For example, on the many unicorns and super apps that the region has produced. Can you describe to us the state of the digital economy in Southeast Asia 
and how digital technology has emerged as such a ubiquitous part of everyday life in the region. Well, thanks, Gatra, for having me on here. It's fantastic to be with you talking about the digital economy in Southeast Asia. So there is a often cited report by Google, Bain and Tomasic about the state of digital economy in Southeast Asia. And it's essentially booming. It's about one trillion by 2030, that's the projection. There are about 440 million people who are currently online with about 60 million, I believe, that were added over the course of the pandemic. And I think because of the relatively young population in many Southeast Asian countries, you see a leapfrogging of digital technology and the use of it, particularly by uh, the younger generation who relies so much on social media for all things for their news, to communicate, uh, but also obviously to shop and to buy things. And so the state of the digital economy in Southeast Asia is hugely robust. It's projected to be even more robust over the coming years. And so a lot of um, upbeat positivity and vibes in this region. Wonderful. I mean, there's definitely great enthusiasm for the transformative potential of digital technology like AI in the region. And it's not just held by the government, but also by many other uh, stakeholders. But governments specifically are obviously looking to digital technology as a source of economic growth. Um, and there's now growing regional debates about cross-border data flows, data privacy, and so on. But what is missing in the discussion about digital technology in the region? A number of things. So while there is a huge hunger for the digital economy to grow people's prosperity um, at the government level, but also at the consumer level, there is a missing piece related to uh, the issue of power and power projection through data, through the digital infrastructure that is being provided from the outside mainly of Southeast Asia to many Southeast Asian countries. So there's a huge reliance on a lot of commercial infrastructure, commercial software, not a lot of discussion about what that means for the long term for Southeast Asia's uh, security. And you see this through the the enthusiasm surrounding the laying of submarine cables, for example, but not as much discussion about the security risks of those cables. You see the same thing with the building of data centers, and you see the same thing with investments by big tech companies, whether they're from the United States, China, or elsewhere, and not a lot of corollary discussion about what that means for Southeast Asia as purely a market base, but not as a contributor or producer of technology. Building on that, uh, the tech space, as you say, is not immune from potential great power competition, right? As evident uh, with the whole case surrounding the U.S. bad on Huawei technology and U.S. networks, uh, which tried to create a, somewhat of a digital iron curtain around the world. How has great power competition in the tech space affected Southeast Asian states and how are individual states or at least the, the primary ones responding? There's a reluctance to talk about great power competition in the space of technology in Southeast Asia because technology has been treated purely as an economic tool so far in Southeast Asia. But I think the inevitable competition that will spill over into things like infrastructure and the in interoperability of infrastructure in huge projects spanning different countries uh, like the ASEAN Power Grid, for example. How are these connections and connectivity networks going to be interoperable, if at all, if there are particular restrictions on certain vendors uh, imposed on Southeast Asian countries? These are issues that um, I think a lot of policymakers in Southeast Asia are trying to skirt around, but I think there will come a time very soon that 
political leaders will have to address in order to ensure that these projects continue as intended and don't affect the ultimate aim of ensuring peace, security and prosperity for the region. One dimension of the tech space that is uh, likely to emerge as uh, an arena of great power competition is standard setting. And um, Southeast Asian states, as predominantly a group of users and adaptive technology, as you say, rather than producers, are at risk of having their own digital standards shaped purely externally. So how can Southeast Asian states play a more active role in digital standard setting in the region? First of all, there has to be a recognition in Southeast Asia that standard setting is a new great power game. And you see this through economic arrangements that are um, not really economic arrangements, but also in ongoing discussions around who sits at the very apex of standard settings bodies like the uh, International Telecommunication Union or the International Organization for Standards, for example. And we've seen that there's only been one Southeast Asian so far that has sat at the leadership level of an organization like the ISO. You have countries like Indonesia and Singapore that are members at the participation level, at the observer level, at the um, ISO Technical Joint Committee on AI Standards Setting. You don't see the other Southeast Asian countries participating as actively or at all. And so that recognition has to be there, followed by an interest and the resources to back that interest to at least be an observer at these forums and be familiar with some of the discussions that are being held at these forums before being able to finally contribute some of the thoughts and perspectives within Southeast Asia on these issues, whether it's at the technical, policy or legal levels surrounding the governance of tech. You and your uh, and, and Mark Mananton of the Pacific Forum have recently published a report calling for more autonomy and a dignity to conversations about data and AI in Southeast Asia. But much of the discussion on digital technology in the region still focuses on, on the its usages of digital technology to foster economic growth. One of the main drivers of technology is to ideally reduce social and economic inequities. So how can Southeast Asian states work to ensure that digital technology makes society more inclusive? Again, I think the recognition to go beyond just the digital economy uh, in a very narrow sense of the term to understanding that technology and data are forms of power, influence and dominance is key to broadening that discussion of ensuring that inequities are not entrenched in the digital space. So far, there hasn't been a very deep reflection on how technology can or cannot um, assist with mitigating some of those inequities. And part of the reason for our report is to, as you say, call for greater awareness of these issues and spark a conversation on how to get more underrepresented communities involved in the framing of the digital space? How do they see themselves play a role in the governance of the digital space, for example? And these include not just women, uh, but also the neurodiverse, the especially abled and indigenous communities that are so often shrouded in the background of even the physical realm, let alone the virtual realm. Now, there's great interest in Australia to foster and deepen cooperation with Southeast Asian states within the cyber domain. Um, what do you recommend policymakers here in Canberra think about when they engage with the region? I'd encourage them to think beyond what is already out there. So I think the Australian government and its agencies have done a really good job in trying to ensure that capacity building is done and done right in Southeast Asia. And there are many, many projects and initiatives, including, for example, the 
greater inclusion of more women, for example, in, in discussions surrounding technological governance. Uh, but having an honest conversation about where some of these underrepresented communities sit or do not sit in discussions on the technological future is going to be key to, again, mitigating some of those social injustices that continue to pervade our societies. So conversations around census topics like Indigenous data sovereignty, um, how do we include, again, more children uh, because they are the future of the internet? How do we include the neurodiverse so that they're not marginal parts of society anymore, even in digital space, but they're actually active contributors to notions of a digital future for Southeast Asia that is truly inclusive and that is truly Southeast Asian? Well, Alina, thank you so much for joining us on the ASPE podcast. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Beck Shrimpton, Director of the Sydney Dialogue, and Adam Gilmore, CEO and founder of Gilmore Space Technologies. Barney Graywell, Analyst with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Dr Tanvi Madan, Senior Fellow and Director of the India Project at the Brookings Institution. Dr Gatra Priandita, Analyst with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Alina Noor, Director of Political Security Affairs and Deputy Director of the Washington DC office at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.